0: you'd please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. This is the first time in the book of Samuel that David is introduced to us. You remember God has rejected Saul as king. And now David is beginning to rise. Beginning now. David is becoming the main character of the story, of the narrative. And of course, this is an important part of Samuel. It's it's more than a plot twist. This is a key part of all of Scripture. David was chosen by God as a man after God's own heart, from whose loins would one day come our Savior, who refers to himself as a son of David. So this is First Samuel 16. Normally I would have you stand. It's a long passage. So please remain seated, but hear God's holy word for you tonight. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, and playing the lyre, and when a harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul and entered into his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever a harmful spirit, the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will last forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do come to you once again on this Sabbath rest, on this Sabbath day, and we pray that your word would be powerful in our hearts by the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. David seems like an unlikely choice. Reminded me of a man named Leon. He was born in 1925 in Kingston, Texas, to his parents Emmett and Josie. He was the seventh of 12 children. A lot of families at that time had very large children, especially Texas families, large children, large children in large families. But this man was nothing special. This boy was just... The son of a sharecropper, his dad, didn't even own the farm that he farmed. They sharecropped. Everything they they produced, they gave a large portion of it back to the owner of the farm and lived on the rest. When Leon was 12, his dad abandoned the family. Leon had to drop out of school in the fifth grade to support the family. He learned to farm. He was picking cotton for a dollar a day. A lot of cotton in Texas. He also learned to hunt small game to feed the family. When he was 16 in 1941, his mother died of pneumonia. A few months later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States into World War II. His sister, his oldest sister, she's a bit devious, she helped him falsify his birth certificate because he was only 16 but he wanted to go fight. So it looked like he was 18. Leon tried to enlist in the Navy and in the Marine Corps, but he was rejected by both of them because he was a tiny little guy. He was five feet, five inches tall, and he weighed a buck twelve. They didn't want him. He was too little. He put on five more pounds and went to the Army recruiter, and the Army took him. And he went on to serve three years in Europe. This little soldier with the middle name Leon is more commonly known in America as Audie Murphy. He would return to Texas three or four years later as the most decorated soldier, American soldier of any service. Won the Medal of Honor, the French Legion of Honor, the Legion of Merit. If you watch the old movie, To Hell and Back, it's a wonderful an accurate account of Audie Murphy's time as a soldier in Europe. But here's the point nobody thought Audie Murphy could do what he did. Nobody had any confidence or expected anything from this man. And yet he became among the most courageous and decorated soldiers that America had ever produced. We should never, ever judge a book by its cover. God doesn't, He doesn't judge a book by its cover. And in Audie Murphy's life, we see that dynamite came in a very small package. This man was an amazing warrior. We're also told of Christ, that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And in 1 Samuel 16, we learn that nobody had any real expectations for David. Nobody. Nobody but God. The title of sermons anointed by God or anointed of God. David was the anointed one. So we're going to look at three things. I'm going to show you how we get, we see Samuel moving from grief to hope, and with Samuel, all of Israel moving from grief to hope. Secondly, we're going to look at Samuel's sight and God's sight. God's teaching Samuel how to look at people. And thirdly, we're going to look at God's favor and God's rejection. But before we go there, I want to just point out, a, I think, a really special part of Isaiah, or, sorry, 1 Samuel 16. There's a, a word, you know, whenever the Hebrews want to emphasize something, they'll use a word over and over and over again. And it doesn't really come through in the actual text, but in Hebrew, the word ruah, which is one of my favorite Hebrew words, it comes again and again, it's nine times in 1 Samuel 16. Nine times, ruah, which means to see, like with your eyes, to see. It's one of the earliest vocab words you learn in Hebrew, ruah. And it's repeated over and over and over again. And what Samuel, what God is doing is showing us that God sees. Because when God sees, it's often translated provides. Jehovah Jireh, That's from the root of ruah. Our God provides. Our God sees. Whenever God sees, he also provides. That's that's why they translate provide. He always has a plan. When he sees a problem, he always provides a divine solution in his own timing and providence. There's nothing that surprises our Lord. See, So I'm going to point that out as we go through the text. The various times where you see that God is pointing out How we should see. It's not just Samuel who's learning how to see people, it's us who are learning how to see life. So, from grief to hope. Point one The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? The first thing that struck me is that Samuel's grieving over Saul. Saul had been rejected by God, Saul was disobedient, he was rebellious, he was impetuous. And Samuel was grieving and continuing to grieve over Saul. Why is that? Do you think it was because he personally loved Saul as a son or something? I don't think so. He's grieving over Saul as a pastor grieves over someone who's wayward in the the church. It's a helpless feeling. Except for God and prayer. And yet this grief was magnified by Saul's position. He was the king. This is the first king. And Saul was was raised up by Samuel, and Samuel was heavily invested in his training. And he's turned out to be a disaster, an absolute disaster. And because he's a disaster and he's rebellious, he's putting the whole nation at risk. Just as Eli's poor leadership had done a few generations before, Samuel probably remembers that and he's thinking, Lord, what have, we, what have I done? And Samuel was grieved grieve that it seemed to be falling apart. It made me think of how many times I grieve about anything more important than my own health or my own situation or my own happiness, my own comfort. How often do you mourn the rebellion of your nation, your country? How often do you grieve the immorality and the spiritual decay that's so prevalent I think we can learn something from Samuel here it it should be more than just I'm grieving because I have some discomfort in life we need like Daniel like the prophets like Samuel to open our eyes and look at the broader scope of what God is doing and grieve the rebellion and pray it should obviously move us to prayer Sunday night at 5 p.m., we meet right here and we pray for our nation and for our world. And God always answers such prayers. Always. Why would He not? It may not be in our lifetime. It may not be our timing. But God will answer a prayer like that. And God answers Samuel. He says, how long will you grieve? He says, fill your horn and go. Fill your horn with oil and Go. God answers Samuel with a command. Stop grieving and trust me. Fill your, to fill a horn with oil meant that you were actually going out to do a mission for God and you were going to anoint someone for a mighty act, a, a mighty position, a place of influence. Fill your horn of oil with oil and Go. This was a special thing, a horn of oil in the hand of a prophet. Everyone knew that he's he's gonna he's gonna something amazing is about to happen. And he said, Go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. One of his sons was going to be the next king. And Samuel's scared because Saul is gonna kill him. He says, Saul will kill me if he finds out. God says, don't worry about Saul. Just go offer sacrifices to me. Invite the town of Bethlehem. Invite Jesse and his sons. And trust me, verse 3, I will show you what to do. God sometimes asks us to do things that are scary. But he also tells us to trust him. To trust him. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God through our hearts and our minds. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God, and he shows us what to do. So Samuel did. He went to Bethlehem. The elders came out, and they were trembling. They were terrified that the prophet had showed up. makes you wonder why. Why were they scared? We don't know exactly, but he's coming to do something important. Was it a special judgment upon the town of Bethlehem? Maybe. Was it that they were afraid of Saul because they knew, you know, Saul and Samuel, they kind of had a falling out? We don't want to align ourselves with Saul publicly because, or Samuel publicly, because Saul will find out and kill us. And we read later that that's what he does to people that align themselves with David. But as soon as Samuel tells them they're there to, Sacrifice, it seems that they relax just a bit. And all of Bethlehem, or at least the elders of Bethlehem, are invited to the sacrifice, including Jesse and his sons. God always has a plan. I think this is our application for this point. Samuel was filled with grief and everything was coming apart. Nothing had worked out. The decades of his training and his faithfulness, nothing was right. It was all unraveling. And it looked to be getting worse. And in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that crazy situation, was God terrified? Was God filled with dismay? Of course not. He wasn't in the slightest way concerned. God knew exactly what was going on. He had planned this day from all eternity for his own glory, just as every day in your life has been written in God's book before you lived a single one of them, Psalm 139, 16. And his plan just needed time to unfold. The same's true in your life. When you're in distress, trust God. Pray and trust God. He's good and he's right and his loving kindness is better than anything in life. God has a plan. So Samuel moves from hopelessness to hope. But the second point is Samuel also learns to see. He learns to see well. Verse 6 he came and he looked on Eliab and he said surely the Lord's anointed is before me He wants to see all Jesse's sons and Jesse of course puts his firstborn up This is the firstborn And what do we know about him He's tall Probably confident probably handsome Full of confidence as a firstborn He's the heir of his father We've all seen people like this. They're just, I'm not saying he's a bad man, but he just looked great. Probably learned and more wise than his brothers, his younger brothers. He's a leader. They look to him for leadership. And Samuel says, That's the guy. Kind of reminds me of Saul. That's the guy. And I love it. God says, No, that's not the guy. And all the other brothers come. Jesse's like, are there any other kids? Is this it? None of those are the ones. And I think the key scripture, Dr. Ralph Davis, commentary I read, he agrees that the key scripture in the text, maybe of all of 1 Samuel, is verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So is God saying that only short, ugly people can be used by God? No. Of course not. What he's saying is appearance doesn't matter to God. It's not a a thing. It doesn't matter what you look like. Short, tall, fat, skinny. He will use you if he desires to use you. But Samuel is like us. We're drawn to attractive people. We're drawn to tall people. We're drawn to people that look like us. We're drawn to things more than we are, external things more than character. But Samuel learns that God values the heart of a man more than his pedigree, his appearance, his wealth, his status, his position, his occupation, his ethnicity. In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. None of these things are important spiritually. God looks at the heart. And we need to train our minds to look at what matters in life as well, not appearances. Eternally, this is what uh, I try to do and I hope that it's helpful for you as well when God puts someone in front of me and every time you meet someone every time you talk to someone it's not random God has placed this person in front of you look at this person through eyes of Christ this person needs something that you have if they don't have their eyes opened if they don't know Christ if they don't trust Jesus I'm not saying you have to share the gospel every time you talk to someone, but you should at least be thinking, Lord, what should I do now? How can I be salt and light in this situation? How can I see with your eyes? How can I see the heart and not the external appearance? The reality is we do the kind of opposite. We see someone who looks ratty or drugged out or poor, and we immediately judge their hearts. Or we see someone who looks nice. They look like they're well put together. And we immediately judge their hearts. One ill and one good. You're missing something if you're doing that. Notice all the seeing. All the seeing. The ra'a ing that goes on in these five Verses. Samuel looked on Eliab. God said not to look at appearances. God sees not as man sees. God looks on the outward. Man looks on the outward. God looks on the heart. There's something we're supposed to glean from that. We're supposed to see the way Samuel was taught to see as well. As imperfectly as we do, we should think spiritually and eternally when we're talking to someone. Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? Is this it? I'm sure Bethlehem was wondering what is going on here. They see this whole procession marching in front of Sam. And you remember, maybe the whole town is there, maybe it's just the elders, but they're watching this thing happen. And the prophet says, No, it's none of them. Is there any more? Here I am with my oil and... Certainly, God isn't making a mistake. And Jesse doesn't even mention his name. He doesn't even say his name. He just says the youngest, the kids out there with the sheep. So Samuel says, bring him. Bring him. Bring the youngest. Go get the boy. We're going to wait until he comes. We're not going to even sit down. We're waiting. You might think, well, that's not very long. They were waiting a long time, I'm thinking. Who knows how far from the town the sheep were kept. could be miles. If you've read through Genesis, you know that they would range throughout a whole portion of Palestine with their sheep. Obviously, it wasn't too very long, but it certainly was probably more than a few minutes. And they're waiting. The messenger sends off and has to find David. Who's out with the flock? And can you imagine this story from David's experience on this day? Here he is doing what shepherds do. He's watching sheep, he's caring for his sheep. And we know from the Psalms that he's praying for Yahweh's protection for his flock and Yahweh's favor. He's binding up a wounded sheep's injury, protecting the flock from a wolf, or helping a lamb who's struggling to keep up with his mother. uh, One of the lambs or sheep that's fallen in a ditch, he's lifting it out. He's living the life of a sheep. And he's always talking. He's always singing or talking, because that's how the sheep know the shepherd. They follow the shepherd's voice. So he's talking, and he's singing, and he's walking, and they're following him as he leads them to water and leads them to green pastures. They know the voice of their shepherd. And all of a sudden he sees a man in the distance running towards him. This is odd. This doesn't happen every day. The man quickly explains, you've got to go back to your father. You've got to go to Bethlehem. And he says, why? What's happening? He says, the prophet came. The prophet Samuel? Yes, the prophet Samuel. He came. Why do I have to go? I've got all these older brothers. Doesn't he want them? No, he doesn't want them. He wants you. He wants to meet you. I'll stay here. You run. Go. They're all waiting for you. Go. David takes off. Can you imagine? He's probably about 15 years old if you piece together what happens later in his life. Maybe 15, 16, 17. Not exactly sure. Taking off running. Running to his dad and to the prophet. He doesn't know what's going to come. What's going to happen? Am I in trouble? I mean, when I was 15, that's what I thought. When Dad called for me, uh uh-oh. Did I do something wrong, Dad? What happened? Am I getting spanked? Who knows what's coming? He doesn't know. We know his brothers are rejected, and he wants to meet David. David shows up. He arrives after running however far he ran, probably disheveled and sweaty, stinky, been around sheep. Have you ever been around sheep? He smelled. And he's exhausted. But through all of that, we read what Samuel's impression was, and everyone probably, that he is ruddy and handsome. Ruddy means red, it just means full of life. His eyes were bright, and beautiful. In other words, he's this great grandson of Boaz and Ruth, this is the Israelite boy. This is This is what it means to be an Israelite. This is a a good-looking kid, full of life. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him. This is he. This precious, this 15-year-old boy, 16-year-old boy, this boy, not even named before, ignored by the family. Not even brought to the sacrifice. In the midst of his brothers, the prophet pours the oil on his head and it runs down over his face and down his body. What an honor. This was the chosen one. The anointed one. You know how how you say that in Greek? Anointed one? Christ. He's the anointed one. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. God chooses David, and then he equips David. I think, obviously, whatever God chooses for you in life, whether he chooses you for you a life of hardship, or maybe physical pain, or he chooses a life of suffering, or you just reap the consequences of your actions, and you live a life filled with sorrow and heartache. Maybe you're a single parent or a grieving widow or you're suffering with some illness or you're watching your family fall apart, relationships that you cherished break down or you've witnessed a horrible tragedy in your life. Or maybe you're just horribly depressed and you struggle with that feeling of hopelessness. Or maybe you're a leader in your community or business. Or God's calling you to battle an indwelling sin, a sin that's so prevalent in your life and you just feel like it will never, ever be free of it. Whatever the case, you need to know that God, if He's called you to this, He's equipped you for this. Don't despair. If you have faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Don't be afraid. Trust in your God and your Redeemer. David was equipped by the Holy Spirit for his work. And it was not a work that was easy. We'll read over the next 10 chapters. David's next 10 or 15 years were filled with heartache and misery. He was chased, he was hunted like a dog by King Saul. He was rejected, he was betrayed by his own people, yet God would sustain him. His spirit was with him. And his spirit is with you if you have faith in Christ. But the third point is that God's favor and his spirit were not with Saul. And there is irony here. Samuel's writing in a great irony. Because in verse 13, we said that the spirit came upon David. And then we see in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And the irony only goes deeper as we read on. Rather than the Spirit of the Lord coming to equip Saul, the Lord sent a harmful spirit to torment him. He was no longer equipped for the good work. Rather, the Lord sent a spirit to torment him for his rebellion and his disobedience. The phrase an evil spirit could mean a demon, but it doesn't have to mean that. It could just mean an angel sent to do the business that God had given him to do, which was to make sure that Saul's life was no longer filled with comfort. And we shouldn't be surprised, I don't think, that the Spirit came from the Lord. Where else would it come from? Spirits, whether good or bad, operate at the will of the Father, the sovereign King in heaven. And apart from His will, nothing comes to pass. But the irony is what you should notice. And that's Samuel's point. The irony is obvious. The Spirit of God descends upon David. The Spirit of God leaves Saul. And rather, God sends a spirit to torment Saul because of his rebellion, his disobedience, and his sinfulness. And yet the irony again runs even deeper. Saul sends for a shepherd who will relieve him when the spirit torments him. Saul sends for, unknowingly, his own replacement on the throne and loves him greatly. And David, the chosen and anointed one by the power of God's Spirit, refreshes the man who will soon try to kill him. And of course, we see allusions to Christ and his work all throughout this particular chapter. I want to conclude just by looking through the New Testament We're going to spend the next probably few months talking about David in great detail. And I'm actually going to do something that I was debating, but I'm going to interlace the psalms that David wrote with the narrative of Samuel as best I can. So we'll talk about the narrative, and then we'll read the psalm that David wrote the next week and preach on that particular psalm hopefully linking the Psalms and David's life together in a helpful way for you. But let's look at David's divine legacy. Matthew 1.1, we see that from the very beginning, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew wanted everyone to know that he was the son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. If you were called the son of David by a Jew... He thought you were the Messiah. Matthew 9.27 Two blind men followed Jesus crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. They think He's the Messiah. Of course He is. Matthew 12.23 The people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? Matthew 21 and the triumphal entry As the crowd saw Jesus, they were shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. And the chief priests were Indignant that he would not rebuke them for calling him the son of David. But he was the root of David as well as the descendant of David. This is what Jesus is teaching us in Luke 20 42. David himself says in the book of Psalms, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? David wrote those words, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus said, If David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? In other words, I am his Lord, and I am his son. In Romans 1, Paul introduces himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, an apostle set apart for the gospel. What is this gospel? which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. Remember, Romans is written to a Gentile audience. But he was descended from David. This is important for us, too. If you're not Jewish, being a son of David is still special. It's still important. as part of the prophecy of God. It's the plan of God. And of course, we read in Revelation 22, 16, That Jesus says, I am the descendant, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. The one who is thirsty, let him come. The one who desires the water of life without price. Jesus still calls us today to come. All the promises that were given to David are fulfilled in Christ. He is the King of kings, the King that reigns forever on the throne. We can have confidence in that. And we can learn the lessons that Samuel learned. That in Christ, our despair turns to hope. In Christ, we can see others with an eternal perspective. Not looking at the externals, but looking toward the heart. And in Christ, our situations can turn around in a moment. May God be glorified. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of study in your word. We thank you for your word and how powerful it is in our lives. And we pray that you would help us. Help us to remember the great promises that you gave the prophets and the apostles of old that are now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You promised that a king would reign, a descendant of David, and his reign would extend all over the earth. And now in Christ we see that that is already begun. As the King of kings and Lord of lords has ambassadors in every corner of this planet for your glory. Lord, we pray truly that your kingdom would come. We pray that you would come, Lord Jesus. And let us anticipate with great joy your second coming. And always be ready in Jesus' name.